Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I'm Derek Riley. I'm with Charlie Smith, and welcome to Dirty Water, a central headquarters for dope peddlers and whores, a funky bar crowded with the hottest pussy and drunken tricks. Today's guest on Dirty Water is one of the few men you'll never find amid clouds of crotch rot and chattering sex pots. He's the son of a shaping great who built his little surfboard label into the biggest in the world, furnishing boards to the best surfers in history, starting with Sean Thompson, moving through Tom Curran, Kelly Slater, Bobby Martinez, Rob Machado and Dane Reynolds, before being eaten up by snowboard giant Burton in 2006. Today's guest didn't go anywhere when the multi-mill sale went through. He stayed with the one-time family biz, and when Daddy retired, became its name shaper. He's a preacher who believes in the kingdom of heaven, but also believes the kingdom of heaven can be present in a beautifully crafted surfboard. Every surfboard is pure art, he says. Today's guest, Mr. Brett Merrick. Hit record. <laughs> hey, Brett Merrick, Charlie Smith, how you doing? So fantastic. Good to be with you guys. Thank you for uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, no worries. So oh, it's just uh, it's afternoon here. Perfect. It's a perfect balmy Southern California afternoon. It is, huh? Are you up in Santa Barbara, Britt? Carpinteria. Carpinteria. Oh, thank you for correcting me. Yeah. 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 It's an, it's an important distinction. <laughs> it is. People from Carpinteria like to make that important distinction. Dude, don't mess that up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, everyone from Australia says Carpinteria, but that's uh, not it. It's not it. It's Carpinteria. It's Spanish. Yep, like Santeria. Yeah, it's Spanish for the carpenter shop. <laughs> uh, there's there's actually a little, there's actually two places in between, Summerlin and Montecito. Summerlin you probably never heard of, but Montecito I'm sure you've heard of. It's where like everyone from L.A. lives. Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey lives in Montecito, Derek. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oprah, Oprah Winfrey bought a $50 million house in Montecito for my friend. Ooh, your friend was living I in a $50 million dollar house? Yeah, he grew up there. It was like his grandma <laughs> with um, old money. And she bought it and she leveled it, tore the whole thing down and rebuilt it. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, Eric Logan. Eric Logan would make the best lawn jockey. Here, he kind of looks like a lawn jockey. <laughs> he's, a, he's a beautiful man. Hey, uh, hey, Brent. I want to talk to you about um, first of all the the early days of Channel Islands because you almost literally grew up in the Shaping Bay, correct? Yep. Yeah, that's right. When my parents started Channel Islands, um, they were super poor at the time, and so they were both working two jobs. And there wasn't really anywhere for me to be other than in the surf shop. So I was in there rolling around in the foam dust. And uh, I, there's this guy, I can't, you know how like old people tell you the same story all the time? There's this one guy, I can't remember who he is, but every time I see him, he's like, oh, I remember when your mom had you in a, a little walker learning to walk and you were knocking over all the surfboards in the surf shop. And one of those old guy stories like tells me it every time. I'm like, oh, wow, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> But yeah, literally grew up uh, in the surf shop and in the factory, and it was cool. Have you have you started telling your own old guy stories yet, Britt? I mean, you're a you father know, now. 
Well, that's the thing about old guy stories. You don't know you're doing that's it. That's the problem. But that's it, how to, <laughs> I've been called out recently of jabbering the same story out on multiple occasions where I, it'll <laughs> totally catch me like, oh, no. Yeah, because you're exactly the old guy story. You have no idea. It's not doing it on purpose. <laughs> I'm sure that we're doing it. We don't know. About <laughs> did, I, did I tell you about the time I was hit by Hezbollah back in the <laughs> summer of 95? Yeah, Dad, you told me that a few times already. <laughs> hey, so, Britt, you're saying that your uh, parents are really dirt poor. How poor? Uh, well, I mean, my, my mom says that she used to uh, stand in line here in our local town, Carpinteria, to get government milk and cheese. And she said uh, our family was the only non-Hispanic family in line, as racist as that probably sounds. Uh, it doesn't, I, don't, I don't think it sounds racist. Does it sound racist? Chaz, you're probably no. hyper-aware living in uh, Los Angeles. Near Los I mean, Angeles. I think we're all hyper-aware right now, but I think we just got to be free. We got to say what we're going to say. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, when you're standing in line for government cheese, uh, the house that I grew up in had uh, grass growing through the floorboards and holes in the walls. And my mom would put pictures on to cover the holes. And she said when it was windy, she had to take them down because the wind would like slap the picture back and forth. So I don't know. That was, seems like fairly poor. Government cheese is a thing though, Derek. Explain to Derek, Australians got real delicious cheese. <sighs> all from birth. They didn't have government cheese. Explain to Derek what government cheese is, Britt. Oh, I was so young. I don't even know, man. Do you know what government cheese is? Government cheese is its own thing. If I recall, and I'm probably totally wrong on this, but I think it's like reconstituted milk Mm. uh, and something else. Like I think it's like 50% reconstituted milk and 50% rocks and weeds or something. Like it's some (laughs) very odd, yeah, it's some very odd thing that's not actual cheese. Listen, yeah, Anything the government is giving you is not good. <laughs> so, so ex- explain how it worked back in uh, in the early days. Actually, what year were you born, Britt? 72. 72. Okay. So, um, you know, it's 73, 74, 75. Your dad's making the boards. Your mom's selling them out the front. Yeah. Is that how it worked? Yeah, that's how it worked. Uh, we were down by the harbor in Santa Barbara, this little place on Helena Avenue there. And, uh, you know it was just starting out. So it was, my dad was making one board at a time and he did the whole board start to finish, you know, shape, glass it, sand it, the whole thing. And my mom was in the front and she was a seamstress. She used to be a bikini model, but this time she was, yeah, I know she's smoking hot. Any photos, (laughs) any photos, Britt? Any, uh, any vintage photos? I do have some, but I'm not going to show them to you, Derek Riley. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I like my lady's little lived in. And, uh, and my mom, uh, so my mom was a seamstress. So she made like Hawaiian shirts and corduroy shorts and stuff like that. So you could come in the, in the store there and get a surfboard and she would, you know, make you a Hawaiian shirt and some shorts at the same time. That's a pretty good deal right there. Why, why, why aren't you doing that today, Brent? It was true mom and pop, bro. It was true mom and pop. We can't even make good t-shirts nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Did your dad think, okay, I'm trust me, trust me on this. We're going to get rich off surfboards or were they just doing it because they liked it? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I don't think they ever thought that. Not that I've discerned, not that they've spoken of getting rich. Um, they had to take out a $200 loan to start the business, which was a ton of money for them back then. They bought foam and resin and cloth 
And that was actually the only loan that they ever took out for Channel Islands was that one loan of 200 bucks. And so that was like them going all in, like, man, we're risking everything on this thing. And like I said, they both worked, you know, two jobs in the beginning. I don't think it was ever about money for them. I mean, my dad was just super passionate about it. It was about this. My dad, he won't tell me this, but my mom tells me that when they started the business, my mom said, because they were going so all in, you know, um, she was like, look, what's the end game here? What, what, am I, what am I getting into? What are we getting into? And my dad said, I want to be the best surfboard shaper in the world. And that was when they started, you know, in 1969, which I didn't even know that was a thing back then. So that that's pretty ambitious, I feel like, for starting out. It wasn't about money, but it was definitely about something. Yeah. I mean, that's totally wildly impressive. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy to, like, say it and then, I don't know. Become it? In my mind, he kind of pulled it off, yeah. For sure he did. <laughs> uh, real quick, though. Are you still servicing the debt on that two hundred dollar loan? Is it yeah, just dude. on your book still? Just yeah, just still the interest. Did you always feel like you're going to be part of the uh, the family biz? Was that always you know the full succession kind of thing? You know, you're the Lachlan Murdoch to your dad's Rupert. Yeah, yeah, I I honestly always did. At least when I was old enough to really think about. It. You know, it's so weird because I grew up so much inside of it that it just was like my life. I couldn't really see it from the outside, I guess, and realize what it was. But I do remember this one time, gosh, I must've been like maybe 10 years old or maybe, maybe even a bit younger. And my dad and I were surfing this little beach break just south of Rincon called La Conchita. And it was kind of a fast, it was kind of breaking right along the rocks and it was kind of a real fast wave. And I'm six, six, I've always been pretty tall. And so when I was, I know it's crazy. You didn't so know that about bread, Derek? No, Derek. Oh. Bread is the tallest drink of water around. It makes me so happy to walk into any surf trade show and just scan. And there's a man standing waist, shoulders, and head above everybody else. <laughs> and that's Brett Merrick. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> you. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate yeah. that. You're welcome. So um, I was always kind of like large growing up. And so I think I went through some like pretty gnarly periods of uncoordination and I was surrounded by pro surfers. That's who like lived at our house, hung out at our house. That's who my dad spent time with. And I was surfing this fast little beach break with my dad and I couldn't get to my feet quick enough. Like I kept getting closed out and I couldn't get to my feet quick enough. And it's just he and I out. And I was super frustrated. And I think if I remember right, I was like on the verge of tears. And I can remember that my dad looked at me and said, don't worry, son, you're not going to be a pro surfer. You're going to be a surfboard shaper. <laughs> and it's weird when I look back on it. I've actually never told that story. It just kind of came to me. But when I look back on it, I feel like that was like one of those moments where like my destiny was, was kind of set right then. And at least I know it had a profound impact on me because from that time forward, that's all I thought was like, okay, I'm going to be a surfboard shaper. Was it, was it a relief? Are you like, dad, come on, you're not believing in my skill? In my ability to shred? Uh, I'm trying to remember what I felt like. It was pretty clear he didn't believe in my ability to shred. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember thinking even then, you know, even though it was just like my dad, and I don't know if you, I guess I was young enough that you still think everything that your dad does is cool. But I remember thinking like, oh, wow, that's rad. Like I, I can do that too. Oh yeah. And from then on, I kind of like, 
I thought about that and I concentrated on that. And that, that was kind of a crazy moment. Is it a, uh, is it a prerequisite to be a shaper? You think not to be able to get to your feet? <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> you guys should both be shapers. I, for, for sure I should. <laughs> I'd be a master shaper. I've since learned to get to my feet, but at that young age, it was a challenge. <laughs> did, did, uh, did daddy always make you a, a fresh customer? Uh, you know what? Not really. It, my dad made me work for it a little bit. And uh, I can still remember the first board I got. It was a 5.6 yellow twin fin with black fins. And, um, man, one of the worst mistakes I ever made in my life, I sold that thing to some stupid kid for 75 bucks. Wish I still had that board. And uh, he kind of made me work for it a little bit. I didn't really have a ton, ton of boards. And I remember one time I needed a board, and it's probably like my early teen years, and uh, he was so busy with team boards that he had one of the ghost shapers make it for me. This is before computer shapes. This is all hand shapes. And I was just crushed. <laughs> I was just so crushed. Because, <laughs> you know, like I'd see like Tom Curran and Sean Thompson, that's who's around at the time. And I'd see them with like these quivers of boards. And he was like, well, this guy, Alan Gibbons, he'll, he'll make you one. I remember I'm probably still a little bit wounded from that. We could probably dive into that if you want. I mean, that's pretty solid right there. <laughs> Some deep stuff there for sure. <laughs> Derek, have you ever had a ghostwriter write a birthday card to your boys? <laughs> yeah, that's, that'd be so funny, huh? But yeah, right? is, it, is, it, is it true, Britt, that um, with the little the Christian fish symbol on the boards, I remember Belly at, um, at Quicksilver Boards and Hostigal telling me this, the boards would come in and if the tail of the fish was closed, it meant Al had shaped it. And if it wasn't closed, it meant a ghost shaper had shaped it. Is that correct? No, it's not correct. Um, But some would come in with the tail closed and some would come in with the tail open. It wasn't that the tail was closed. It was that my dad put his name, Al, A-L, in front of the fish and the L, the the L went into the tail and it became like one thing. Ah. So it was really clear because it would be A-L and then attached to the fish. Uh, yeah, except for in the super early days. In the super early days before Ghost Shapers, he would just do the fish and not the owl. The the fish was so ubiquitous as a kid for me that I honestly thought like that it, it meant something different for surfing than it did to my little Christian family. Yeah. That, that, that surfboard shapers use this fish for some... I couldn't figure out what it meant, but <laughs> I knew it was something related to surfboard shaping. Yeah, I think a lot, people, a lot of people. A lot of people probably still think that, right? A lot of people uh, probably still think that because there's a lot of shapers that do it. Yeah, and I don't think that many people know that it was a Christian thing. I'm sure a lot of people think that. That's pretty funny. Yeah, I was. Con- I mean, as a Christian, I was convinced that it was some other special surfboard language. Did you even know, as a young Christian, that that was a Christian sign? Sure, because I grew up Calvary Chapel. So oh, yeah, okay. I mean, I had the fish and everything. The fish and the dove was everywhere. So I was. <laughs> oh, no, that's right. It was the dove. It was the, the dove that, was bigger than the fish. Totally. Calvary totally pivoted hard on branding to the dove, yeah. away from the cross, away from the fish to yeah. the dove. Yeah. But I was aware enough of the fish that, yeah, yeah. like, but yeah. Right. The funniest part about the dove is when you see like people, it's usually in Orange County, you see people with the dove sticker on their car, but they put it on the wrong way so that the yeah. dove is going up instead of down. Because it's supposed to be the symbol of the Holy Spirit. Like, the Holy Spirit departing. It's like, think about it. God is reclaiming the Holy Spirit. We did a real bad job. He's calling her back in. 
You this guys are fucking talking and speaking in tongues right now. Yeah, we are. No, uh, not right not tongues, but how about that one story <laughs> that you wrote that one time, Derek? Oh, which one? About tongues? Yeah. Oh, no, the, 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 the amazing clip from Corinthians. You're talking about Corinthians 1, 14 yeah. or something? And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk, yeah, to explain the magic of speaking in tongues for the for heathens like uh, myself. Even though I grew up a Catholic, but uh, I've sin- since dumped that religion. Well, that's but that anyway. No Catholics are dang speaking in tongues. That's those, true. Are the, those are cool. The coolest Catholics, charismatic yeah. Catholics. Those are the I mean, charismatic Catholics. Really are. Laps Catholics are bad. <laughs> I mean, we all had, Catholics. We all had bad experiences. Are you are like were you guys Pentecostal or what was it, Britt? Uh, by you guys, what do you mean? I mean, you, were you and your family? I mean, did you grow up Pentecostal? No, uh, we're pretty much Calvary Chapel vibe. Okay. Yeah. So probably, you know, slightly charismatic, but definitely not Pentecostal, no. Okay. Mm-mm. Can you, ex- can you, either you or Chaz, explain the differences between, um, you know, Calvary and Pentecostal and, and all this sort of stuff? Brett, you go for it. I'll correct you when okay. you get <laughs> off path. Um, well, I, gosh, Christianity is like anything else where there's a, a lot of different sort of flavors and tribes that emphasize different things. And so I think if there's like a continuum, you probably have people on one side that really value like experience and visual sort of signs and stuff. And then the other side might be more um, word and sacrament based. And then there's a continuum in between. So the Pentecostals would be like, man, it's all about signs and wonders and outward displays and experiences and what you feel. And then the other side, it would be about, um, having faith in what um, the word says and the sacraments that you perform sort of in response to that. And then there's a continuum in between. So Chaz and I growing up, we're somewhere in between probably. Uh, I can't, I can't, I can't believe you're a writer. Those are two different words. It's (laughs) You know, one is C-A-V. A L whatever, and one is C A L V Calvary. That's Calvary Chapel. Calvary is the name of the hill where Jesus died on the cross, and then a cavalry is a horse, like an armed horse troop or something. Two different words, bro. No, because because as Britt said, the charismatic Catholics all where it's at. I mean, that's where I would I would go there if I could. Probably at this point, I mean, I, I could. Think- I could see, I could see you going there. I think yeah, I'm charismatic for you, right? Yeah, I would. I think I could pull it off. Oh yeah. Well, you get that, and then if you're a charismatic Catholic, you get to go wild too. You get it all. You, that's <laughs> the charismatic Catholic is literally having your cake and eating it too. It could be, could be a full package. Uh, sure, but a charismatic Catholic. I think the emphasis on the charisma. Oh yeah, so he's using the word charismatic in a different way than you are, Derek. There's two. Different- I'm code switching. We, oh man, I'm, we, deep we in it. I'm, I'm real deep in it right now though, Brett. I'm working on a book that involves the roots of Calvary Chapel. And so oh. t- tying it all the way back to uh, Amy Semple, Amy, Derek, Amy Semple McPherson, one of the most fascinating characters in, oh. I will say, American history. Yeah. yeah Absolutely you, fascinating. That's cool. Yeah. What's that book? Well, my cousin, Dan, so you, I think you might know my uncle, John Corson. 
uh, is a <laughs> Calvary pastor. I, was your uncle. I did not know John Carson was your uncle. Shut yeah, up. that's my, my mother's brother, Pastor John. Wait, so, what? Yeah. I did not know that. I thought you knew that. I had never knew that. I'm tripping out right now. Yeah, my Derek, my uh, uncle is a famous, as far as pastors go, a famous Calvary Chapel pastor. Yeah, yeah, he's like a big deal in the ca- in the Calvary Chapel world. That's so yeah. funny. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Is that horse? He doesn't. He doesn't get the heat. I mean, he should. One of the Calvary pastors should also start up a Calvary. Calvary. <laughs> Calvary. Calvary. <laughs> but but yeah, but but then so my cousin though so I got John there, but then my cousin Dan Corson mm-hmm. became a super famous bank robber, and so I am tying sort of Calvary Chapel bank robbing together and just a wild tale of yeah faith and stick em ups i guess that sounds awesome that explains so much <laughs> <laughs> your family oh that's great yeah yep old john so i gotta get yeah that's but, cool. yeah there we go hey chess what about that amy chick you were talking about before amy sample so Amy Semple McPherson, she started, uh, again, this is like deep cut sort of charismatic Protest- Protestant Christianity here, but she started what is called the Foursquare Movement or Foursquare Churches, which are, I never, did you think of them one way or the other growing up, Britt? I always just thought of them as kind of normal. Uh, well, yeah, but definitely on the charismatic side. Sure, but I guess I didn't know how charismatic they were, but maybe they yeah. moved away from their charismatic ness a bit but uh anyway amy selma mcpherson started this whole thing she was uh early 1900s um built the first world's first mega church the angeles temple in echo park in la and would do like full i mean she was twice divorced uh died of a drug overdose accidental drug overdose at 44 i think but was wildly i mean just yeah when she died there were 45,000 people lined up for all for days to just wander by her casket. She would have like the craziest Christian uh, services on Sunday where she would like ride around on a motorcycle on stage, chasing sin and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, but total. my grandma uh, loved Amy Sample McPherson. And so there was these, like my grandma, who I always thought of as Brit John's mom, uh, Nana, uh, I always thought of as kind of stiff and then thinking how in the world were you squaring this twice divorced, like real force of nature, right. you know, female pastor, which female pastors at that point were relatively unheard of. Right. But everybody loved her. I mean, my grandma loved her for pity's sake, which is, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, Christianity used to put on such a better show, I think. <laughs> Maybe. There's, I mean, she rode a motorbike around on stage chasing yeah, sin. Yeah, you're right. That's a pretty good one. That's she would preach. She would true. preach from a lacquered white throne half the time. She would be literally on a lacquered white throne, surrounded by dancers, oh, just preaching. Yeah, it's epic, epic stuff. Yeah. So, Derek, to kind of address your question about the continuum of Christian experience, that that one has not really been mine. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely uh, had a clear sense of a Christian upbringing, and. Um, that that was that was pretty obvious and it was pretty real. My my parents are probably the most real Christians I've ever known. They're not like ever preachy and weird, but they're just like 
they have actual integrity. They tell the truth. They like actually love people and are kind to them and are incredibly generous. And they've always been that way. So I think through them, I saw like real Christianity, which is super cool. Um, I, I rebelled against it, you know, in junior high and high school. I went way in the other direction. I mean, I was, you know, doing drugs and selling drugs. I got arrested on my high school campus here in Carpinteria for selling drugs. Oh, what were you selling? LSD. Oh, were you good at LSD selling? <laughs> oh, yeah, I was crushing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, how would you sell it and how much would it cost to buy some LSD from Britt Merrick? Oh, gosh, bro. I can't even remember. I, it was all word of mouth, which is what got me busted. Somebody ratted me out, but um, it was pretty cheap. I think it was like five bucks a tab or something back then. Ooh, wait. That sound about right? Would you, would you market it special? Would you, draw, would you draw the fish on your LSD? No, but there were little hexagons on there. There's Channel Island sign on there. Really? No fish. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Have have one of these little dumpster divers. Five bucks. Yeah. <laughs> get you the dumpster. <laughs> That'd be a good name. <laughs> so, um, so did, did you love LSD, or was it just something that was a, a money making concern for you at the time? No, it wasn't about money for me. It was definitely like I was I was kind of into that thing. I was into like the Grateful Dead and going to Grateful Dead concerts, and um, you know psychedelic experiences and just mindless partying, whatever. Did Kelly turn you on to psychedelic experiences? He's been talking about psychedelics a lot lately. Dude, Kelly was so straight edge at that time. Not even. <laughs> he's so he's so far behind the curve, man. That's so funny. <laughs> 35 years ago. <laughs> Kelly discovered psychedelics. Like, he discovered psychedelics when like um, everyone in like um, – uh, Silicon Valley and stuff is doing oh, psychedelics. Like, it's not, it can't be cool anymore. That is, that is <laughs> so doing it in Silicon Valley, like, it's not cool anymore. I totally <laughs> didn't even tie Kelly's discovery to Silicon Valley, but that's exactly it. That's, that's, yeah. That's, yeah. It's, oh, man. It helps you think better, faster, get more work done. Yeah. People used to make rad music like Jimi Hendrix and stuff, and now they're making computers. Yeah. So like about, <laughs> what was the What was the best LSD experience you ever had, Britt? Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> did any? Did you? Did you ever? Or at any point, sort of, did it ever open a part of your brain that's just like a portal into, to sort of, you know, um, to heavenly worlds? Uh, no, it didn't. You know, I was always kind of conflicted in it because I had that strong Christian background, so it never really quite felt like me. So I think that even though I was super into it, um there was always like this sense of like, man, this is, this is opening me up to something that I'm not, I'm not actually really into is the way that I felt about it and why I was eventually kind of part of the reason why I was over it eventually. So for me, it wasn't like a super um, rad spiritual thing. I, f- I felt like I had some true spirituality that I was trying to rebel against and that wasn't it. So it felt like counterfeit in that area so I think for me, it was more just like the craziness of it. Did you have any um, any fucked up trips? No, not really. No. <laughs> so, so what happened when you got busted? Um, dude, man, when I got busted, it was a bummer. Like, 
So I, they took me in the office at the school and they called the cops and I was trying to be tough. I was like, yeah, I don't sweat the cops. Fine, call the cops. That's no big deal. And then they, they're like, hey, we're going to call your mom. I'm like, dude, you can't call my mom. <laughs> and I'm a super mama's boy. Like, I love my mom so much. I'm at my mom's house right now, my mom and dad's house. Um, man, I love my mom. And she's been so good to me my whole life and loved me so unconditionally. And honestly, dude, like, she walked in that office and I was in handcuffs when she walked in. And the look on her face like broke my heart, dude. Disappointment? It wasn't disappointment, man. It wasn't disappointment. It was this look of like, I love you so much. I love you so much. And it was like, that's what broke my heart because I felt like, man, I am hurting this woman that loves me this way. And that, that's kind of what turned me around that like, sense of love from her unconditional love in that like lamest point of my life was kind of like the biggest wake up call. Well, that's pretty epic. Oh man. Yeah. That look, that look from a mom. <laughs> yeah, I do. It's a rough one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was 16. Jesus. And then, and then what happened? What happened the day after that? Did, he, did the police take you in or? Did they release you into the care of your mother? No, they took me in and booked me and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I think I spent like a few hours in, in the clink or whatever, the cell. And then they went home and then I had to deal with my dad. And what did Al do? <laughs> so you can't even get to your feet, boy, on the way. <laughs> He's selling LSD. Bringing shame to the Merrick family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it was a different experience he gave me some different looks than my mom did <laughs> but it was good he was a good dad through it he was a really good dad through it they were both pretty understanding they'd come out of the 60s you know what I mean so like they, they weren't naive to that stuff and it wasn't that far removed from their experiences as young people so um, I thought they handled it pretty well and you did but, you, but you, there was you, definitely you, Sorry, you go, Britt. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, very Christian man. I was going to say, your dad, yeah. dad couldn't kick up too much of a stink because he, uh, he did eight months for dealing weed, huh, in 69? Yeah, yeah. They had gotten arrested for selling drugs, and that was their turnaround. They got arrested, and they both went to jail, and they both got saved, met the Lord while they were in jail. Your mom and your dad? Yeah. Got busted when they were married? Nope, it was before they were married. Okay, they got they got busted for uh, smuggling weed. Well, <laughs> I think it was cool until they went to jail, <laughs> <laughs> and I think it lost its cool real quick. They both went to jail. My dad went for longer, and um, and again, that's apart from each other. But that's where they both met the Lord, and they came out and just totally different people. Wow! So, how did that conversion happen in jail? Was it a jail preacher or something? Um, I can't remember exactly how it went down for my dad, but for my mom, she was, uh, in Santa Barbara and there's this Christian college in Santa Barbara called Westmont and the students, they're probably still doing it, but they would go do like jail visits. You know what I mean? And they went and they, uh, 
were visiting my mom in jail and it was some girls, some Christian girls from that school, Westmont. And they just told her about Jesus and forgiveness of sins. And it just clicked. And that was it for her right there. Hey, so, um, so your mom and dad got converted in, uh, in prison. Yeah. And then they got out, I guess, in 69, 70. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. And then how did they apply that to their lives and their business? Man, they, a lot, like, like I said, they got out and they were different people. Obviously they weren't in that whole drug culture anymore and all that stuff. And they got pretty active in their faith. Like they started having Bible studies at the shaping room and in the shop there and just trying to tell other people, like it was 1969. So there was a lot going on, you know, culturally and spiritually and just on sort of human terms. Um, And so they started telling other people about Jesus and, a lot of other people were getting saved during that time. And it was, Chaz will know, but like it's during that time where there's like the Jesus people movement in Southern California. And there was like, God was just doing a lot in California at that time. And they were kind of part of that. And so they used their business as sort of a platform to talk to other people about Jesus and forgiveness of sins. And I've st- I still meet people around the world when I travel and they're like, I was in your parents' store in 1972 at this Bible study and I gave my life to the Lord and totally changed my life. And so they were, and they are like the real deal in that thing. But then I think like also it was huge, just the way that they've done business over the years and the way that they did business. Like I was speaking of earlier with like integrity and truth and honesty and the way that they treated their employees. Like when you talk to their employees through the years, they like, they just, they're just like, dude, your mom and dad are like my mom and dad. I've never been so like loved and taken care of and stuff like that. So I think for them, unlike a lot of people, I think their faith was like had a really meaningful impact on the way that they lived and treated people. Wow. So when did, when did you start preaching? When, when did that start to become a thing for you? That started. Um, <clears throat> Cause you look so much different without a beard. Yeah, I know. It's weird. huh? Yeah. Uh, it, part of that story is in Australia, but after that, I it was it was fairly similar to my parents. I was in my early twenties, and um, man, the kids in in this small town carpentry I was growing up, I just was I don't know. I had genuine concern about like their well being. Kids were just you know doing the stuff that I did at their age, partying and being stupid, and uh, I wanted to help the kids. And and my sort of paradigm what I understood was like, man, I need to tell them that there's a God that loves them. And you know, that there's a different way that they can live and that they can have forgiveness of sins and and this whole hope of eternal life. And so I went down to the local beach where I'm just a block from right now called Tarpits here and invited the kids that I surfed with all the time, the Groms back to my parents' house, actually in this room I'm sitting in right now um, to watch surf movies. My mom would make food and then we do like a little Bible study. And so I would just kind of like open up the Bible, like the gospel of Luke at the time and just kind of tell them, Hey, this is what Jesus said. And these are the things that he did. And it just kind of started that way. It was just like six kids here in my parents' house telling them about Jesus. And that kind of snowballed and grew. And eventually it was like 800 college kids on a Friday night. You, at that point, you were, I mean, you started a church, right? I get confused. So that was your church. Yeah. I started that church. Yeah. Okay. And so you were like, were you shaping or doing anything at this point or were you full ministry? No. So once I started kind of doing those Bible studies and stuff that ter- they went from a surfer thing to like this Friday night college thing in Santa Barbara with hundreds of kids, 
I was still doing Channel Islands. I was doing them both. And I did them both for seven years. My main emphasis was Channel Islands. This was just like this thing that I was kind of like doing on the side because I felt kind of compelled and called to do it. But that thing like snowballed. Like I said, there was 800 kids on a Friday night. Like it got pretty, it got pretty intense. And then we just felt like we were supposed to start a church in our hometown. Again, I just wanted to help the people in the town that I lived with. And that's the only way that I knew how. So we started this church and um, I thought like, okay, that's cool. I'll still do both. I'll make surfboards. And I was doing all kinds of stuff at CI. I was doing the marketing. I was managing the team. I was making surfboards, like helping run the business, all sorts of stuff. And I thought, okay, we'll start the church and I'll still do both. But we started the church and it just went crazy. Like it just got out of control in a positive way, super quickly with a response. And there was just this moment where I realized, man, I can't do both of these. And that was actually like up until that point, that was the hardest thing I'd ever experienced in my life because for me, like Channel Islands was so much more than just making surfboards. It was like my family and my family and story and my blood. And, um, you know, it was a huge part of my identity and it was really my hopes and dreams. Like I never dreamed about being a pastor. I never did. I dreamed about being a shaper and making surfboards and experiencing surfing with people and stuff. And I just felt like God called me to do that thing. And there came a point where I couldn't do both of them. And it was a big deal for our family. You know, we had to sit down and talk about it. And, you know, my parents had groomed me from the beginning to take over the business. And at that moment, I was like, man, I can't, I can't do that. And that was, that was really hard. I had to give that up. And that, that was, that was painful. When, what year was that? That was uh, 2003. Okay, so this was uh, Kelly still hot in the mix. Yeah. So it was like, what? Dane hadn't started coming up yet. No, Dane was still a tiny baby. Yeah, no, he wasn't a tiny baby, but he was still young. Kid. Yeah. 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 Well, and so you, so you were, um, was there, was there always talk of a succession plan between when your dad wanted to retire and, and that you would take over? Yeah. Always, that, be- it, always, that was, that was the plan. It was understood. And that was the plan hundred percent. That was his business plan. That was our family plan. That was my life plan for my wife and I, uh, that was a dream and exactly what we wanted to do. So, is it, is it- so when then I went into the ministry and left CI for a while, that's when they sold to Burton. And was the, was the fact that you went to the ministry part of the decision to sell to Burton? Yeah, because my parents were kind of moving toward retirement, and it was obvious that I had other stuff that I had to do, so they had to figure out you know, how to, how to take the business into the next phase. But wait just a second. The sale to Burton absolutely was a full-on great move for CI. Yeah, you got a new you got a new factory, right? Yeah, yeah. I know. Are you? I'm I'm hearing some no here, Brent. Well, no. I, From my perspective, Burton took on a bunch of debt, and or not that you guys had debt. They took on your two hundred dollars of debt that you were still servicing, and then, uh, but build. I mean, really, truly invested in CI is what it seemed like from my outside perspective. No, they did. You're telling me that's yeah, not true. No, no, I'm not telling you that's not true at all. They totally invested in CI and it worked out great for my parents. They were super yeah. cool to my parents. It worked out very well for them and their life's work. And Burton is very, very hands off with CI, just helpful investing. 
um, brought a whole lot to the table, but they let CI be CI. They don't really mess with it. My reticence there, my, my hesitance was only because you're like, well, that was really good for CI, but yeah, that was, but it was my dream was to, to, own. to take over CI, you know, from but the can't, parents and for that to be a family thing. Well, just between us, not on the podcast here, <laughs> nobody's going to listen. So we're all good. <laughs> just kidding. Everyone's going to listen, but uh, you could buy CI back for pennies. No, I don't know where you're getting that pennies on the dollar. I mean, in terms of, in terms of what Burton put in, I would imagine that if you really, if you really wanted to spring it back, no present, right? Yeah. No kind of like the present. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like Burton is like swimming in cash. I'm, I'm sure they would, their investors would be happy. No, uh, I don't know their investors. I don't know, man. So they've literally, but I mean, is the relationship pretty good? It seems good. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. It's really. It seems good. like one of the. It seems oddly like one of the better acquisitions. Long, I mean, again, I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but just yeah. from the outside, it looks like CI got a state-of-the-art new facility. Burton got to be part of Surf. And didn't mess with it the way other people mess with acquisitions. Yeah, totally. And, you know, Jake Burton was a fan of CI for a long time and a fan of surfing. And he basically told his people, don't mess with my surfboard company. Let them be them. So they've just been a resource and a help and a great back end. And CI just gets to be what it is. So at what point did you step back from um, your ministry and... um and, you know, become the face of, uh, CI, uh, about, um, about seven or eight years ago. Um, my daughter, Daisy love, who was like eight at the time was dying of cancer. She got cancer when she was five and we fought it for three and a half years. And then she died. And shortly before she died, one of the kids that I used to coach when I was managing the CI team and that I used to shape boards for, Brian Oresco, a kid from Carpinteria here who also used to come to that Bible study that I had. I hadn't seen him in a few years and he showed up at my house and he and his dad knocked on my door and they're like, hey man, what's going on? We chatted and they're like, hey, we want to build you a shaping room in your backyard. And at that time, I hadn't even shaped a board in several years. I was like, what do you mean you want to build me a shaping room? I haven't shaped a board in years. And he said, I know you haven't, but I think you should. I think it'll be good for you. And he and his dad came into my backyard, paid for it themselves, built me a shaping room. And uh, I started shaping again. And I just started doing it just for fun. You know, no, it was just all hand shapes, no computer shapes or anything. And when I got back in the room after being out of there for years, during that time when I was going through my my daughter, you know, heading toward dying from cancer. It was like this incredible experience. It was like this cathartic, healing, freeing, like almost salvific thing where I was in there shaping and all the things about my daughter's illness and everything that went along with that and the months on end we'd spend in the hospital and all that fear and all that pain would just disappear for a few hours while I was in the shaping room. And um, all of a sudden I realized like, man, this, this shaping thing is such a huge part of who I am. And it's so important to me. And it's got so much inherent value in it. And so I just started shaping just for myself. 
Um, and then for my wife and then shapes and boards for my son and some friends like that. And then CI kind of took notice. And at the time they were kind of struggling with Dane Reynolds boards. Um, he just wasn't happy and they needed some help. And they just approached me several times, you know, Hey, come and you can shape for Dane. Cause I was Dane's first shaper when he was a kid and shaped for him for years come back. You could just shape for Dane and it'll be cool. You could do what you want to do. And I kept saying no, but then eventually one day it kind of clicked. I was like, yeah, I'll do that, man. That sounds like fun. And that's kind of how it started again. Wow. There's a, um, <clears throat> there's a great quote from you about shaping and it says, uh, shaping is pure art. Every board I shape, it's deeply connected from my heart. It can't just work. It has to be beautiful. I was shaping this morning. The sun was up and I was working on a hand shape and working hard on it. But I was so pleased with how beautiful it was. Um, that's that's sort of quite it's quite rare to hear from a uh, from a shaper. It really means something to you, huh? Yeah, I, I don't I, I don't know about anyone else, but for me, um, man, it's a real I don't know. It's a real love thing. I, maybe it comes from my upbringing. You know, like I guess for me, it has deep ties to my childhood and my self understanding and growing up literally just sitting in the door in my dad's shaping room for all those years, watching him shape and my mom being right there. And I don't know, somehow it feels like home to me. And did, um, did, did going away from it and coming back give you even greater love? I mean, separating yeah. Yeah. for the time that you separated. Yeah, it did. It really did. You know, before I went away from that, I was super deep and just, plowing through boards every day, you know, working next to my dad and just uh, production shaping a whole lot. And it was cool to have some time off from that and coming back to it. It's just giving me a brand new appreciation and, and love for it. And I, I really love it. And I, I just, I really think that like, think about what surfing is for us. We have the most incredible experiences surfing, like these life changing, beautiful moments and they happen on surfboards. So like in that way, surfboards are kind of a big deal. Like they're, they're kind of like this really neat thing because we all have these incredible experiences on it. So to be able to make that um, and then have the connection that comes through that with surfers, I just think is, is cool. So yeah, I, I really value it. I'm having an incredible experience right now on a channel, channel islands, but you don't shape the mids, do you? <laughs> I know about you, you and your, your, your sordid mid length affair. It's so dirty. <laughs> I'm so deep. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, honestly, fell in love with a street walker in Paris. And now I've married her. And that's what's happening. That's what's happening in my surf life. But, that thing, but you don't shape. You married a surf walker in Paris? Oh, I didn't know. I didn't marry a street walker in Paris. Don't worry. My daughter overheard. Just scarred she'll, be, she'll be in therapy for that, bro. <laughs> no, me and mom are still good. Don't worry. Just that. Hey Brit. Hey Brit. Yeah. Are you sure? Yes. Wait, was that? Hey Brit, are you as, are you as uh, contemptuous of mid lengths um, as me? No, I no, I. Uh, but you're not shaping it. You you have a mid length no, team. No, I shape I, I shape them. I don't shape really? them all day. I concentrate on on you know real surfboards. Don't no, say it. I'm not saying that. I concentrate <laughs> that? On, on team on other team boards, high performance stuff. Is kind of my area of specialty. You don't, you don't make low performance boards, the mid lengths? Yeah, you guys no. don't get me in all kinds low, of low yeah. performance boards. Uh, how good does Devin Howard surf him? That's what I'll say. That's what I'm uh, saying, though. That's what, but Derek, you could ride a 
before. I know, but Devin Howard looks so. That's what my conversion, my uh, Damascus Road was Devin Howard surfing, and just <laughs> thinking that's how I want to surf. Like, uh, yeah. well, that's what he's on, and then riding one. Poor Derek hates this conversation. Derek really hates where this conversation has turned. He was okay with Christian stuff. He was gonna <laughs> he yeah, was gonna let that bubble. Like <laughs> but this mid length talk just straight up heresy. This is naughty talk right here. It's like fucking child's pole when you talk about mid length. <laughs> but, but here's the thing, man. Here's the thing. If we're gonna think about it on the real, like I think that surfing is so beautiful and so important and so good for people that we want everybody to be able to enjoy it. And so if that requires a bunch of different type of boards and if like Chaz is having this experience through that, then I support that. Rapturous. A rapturous experience. <laughs> it is, but it truly it's funny. Of course, Derek, I, I don't know, Derek, have you ever had, when was your first channel islands? Derek Riley. Um, first channel islands. Maybe it was a dumpster diver when everyone was on the um, dumpster divers. Mine had this incredibly deep single concave going through it, and it was really, really sticky, so I didn't hang on to it for long. I think my first CI was Black Beauty. Mm. Uh, mm. They were good. The Black Beauties are amazing. I absolutely love them. But this is my first CI since then, and it almost oh. felt like a homecoming, even though it's a. I know it's a mid. But yeah. There's something about a dang. C- I mean, it's the wife, my wife, who I just got accused of cheating on <laughs> with a pair of streetwalker. I, yeah, uh, an eight foot long. Yeah. <laughs> it's not eight foot. I got mine is basically a shortboard. It's six ten. Yeah, yeah six ten. Yeah, there's no problem, right? That's a step. Up. I'm six. I'm six six, man. Six ten isn't even big. That's what I'm talking about. I'm six four. So it, yeah. it's like yeah, just barely. Yeah, it's a short. I ride a shortboard, Derek. Are those real quick? Are those crushing for you though? It feels like they're yeah. crushing for you. They're doing great. They're doing so great. They're, they're just so fun. It's just such a, a fun, easy to ride, uh, rad board. Like they're, they're I, I've actually been surprised at how incredibly well they're doing for us. Is stinking cool. Is Devin fucking Howard? Uh, has he always been CI, or how did you how did you rope yeah. old Devin Howard in? We had um, we had an open job rec for a marketing director. Derek, or I mean, Devin just straight up applied. He sent his link. He, did. he just saw it online and he just showed up and he made it through the first round and then came in and did a job interview with me and Scott Anderson, our, our general manager. And uh, he got the job, man. I mean, that's amazing. I, he's he's a good dude. He's yeah. sharp and he's he's a man of principle. Yeah, he's a principled man for sure. Yeah. and he has a the thickest of skins. He does. He does have a thick skin. <laughs> he does have a thick skin, and we become good surf buddies, man. We've been driving down the trestles together, surfing lately, and, and having a good time. Do you? Uh, are you able to pop to your feet quick in front of Devin Howard? I would feel so much pressure. Yeah, actually, I just saw some video of he and I surfing trestles the other day, and I dropped in on him, and he was up to his feet so much quicker than I was. <laughs> I was so bummed. It's so funny you say that. But he's such a gentleman that he let me go. He, like, straightened out, and he's like, go, bro. And I just – I have no excuse. I was just fully burning, and he's like, go, bro, and just straightens out. No leash, of course, so he's got to, like, wrangle that. And I'm like, 
halfway down the wave before I'm up to my feet, and he was already like looking good. It was shameful. It was shameful, dude. <laughs> Speaking of shameful, I'm going to length. Let's talk about the of uh, you know when you got back into shaping and you're doing Dane's boards. That must have been an extraordinary time shaping boards with this this guy who would become you know the best surfer in the world, everyone's favorite surfer. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was incredible. I mean, he he was already on that level when when I came back in, and so it was a great challenge for me. Um, at the time, I was just only doing hand shapes when I started again. And so I was doing him a bunch of hand shapes and Dane is, uh, the hardest guy in the world to shape for, uh, in a, in a good way. You know, he's really particular. He knows exactly what he wants to feel. He doesn't, he doesn't tolerate what he doesn't want to feel. And those are, those can be, if they have a good attitude, those are the best kind of surfers because those are the ones that push you. So I felt like when I got back into it, I had a really good like challenge to really strive for in in doing handshapes for Dane. Without Dane, and what's the, oh, sorry? I say good. Chance. Without Dane, uh, do you think your sir your shaper trajectory would have been different? Oh, yeah, it would not have been. It would not have been as good. Dane has definitely definitely helped me be a better shaper. Any, any surfer like that will, you know. My my dad always used to tell me that. His favorite guys to shape for were the hardest guys to shape for because those are the guys that pushed him. And my dad's super driven. I'm super driven. We're super sort of competitive. And so when someone says, man, this isn't good, like we don't get all butthurt about it. We dig in and like, okay, how can I make this good? I'm going to make this thing sick. My dad told me that um, the hardest guy to shape for and so his favorite guy to shape for was Chris Brown. Ooh, he said Chris Brown was just so picky, just could not be pleased, was always complaining about his boards. And sometimes it would become adversarial between them because like Chris was, could be pretty intense if you knew Chris. And uh, it just really challenged my dad. He said Chris was way harder to shape for than Kelly. How was, how was Kelly to shape for? I'm sorry? How was Kelly to shape for? Was Kelly just like go along, get along? No, Kelly wasn't go along, get along. Kelly also pushed my dad, not quite as much as Chris, but Kelly was also challenging. And I think though it was, it was an interesting time, right? Because boards were changing so much at the time and Kelly was changing so much, changing surfing so much at the time that there was like this snowball sort of, of progression that I think, um, it was going to be challenging either way. You know what I mean? Like, and I think to a certain degree, I'm just sort of thinking about it. He, he probably was, had to go along with it because it, boards were changing so quickly when Kelly was coming up. I mean, you know, they would go so narrow, so long, so much rocker all of a sudden that it was just like this process of discovery. But, you know, Kelly always kept my dad interested and challenged. Do you remember the, uh, the moment when um, Kelly's six O's, whatever they were, when it went below 18 inches. Do you remember when your dad said, I'm actually making a board 17 and three quarters inches wide? Yeah, they were six ones. And they were 17 and three quarters is where they landed. But before that, they even went narrower than that. <laughs> Seven and three quarters is kind of, that's kind of where they landed. Yeah, and six one. Like, can you imagine you ever, you, around six one? He wouldn't even ride a six one at like eight foot Holly either. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's amazing, 17 and three quarters of inches. I mean, everyone, everyone now just orders, you know, buy, a leader, buy leaders. Yeah. What do you think about that process? And people say, this is my number, I'm a 29, I'm a 33, rather than I'm a 6.0 by 18 and a half by two and, two and three eights. 
Do you like the, the uh, latest system? Um, I, I think that it could be a useful tool. It can't be the only number. It's just another dimension on a board. You know, a board might be uh, 6 19 and an eighth, two and a half, and, and 31.5 liters. And all of those things work together. And it's about where the leaders are. And you could get to a certain number of leaders a whole bunch of different ways in a surfboard. So it doesn't really work just to say, these are my leaders, unless you're dialed in on, and this is the exact model that I want these leaders on. Otherwise, it just has to be one um, of a whole set of dimensions. What What's your favorite surfboard design of your own making? Um. Favorite one of my own making, man. You know, I made Dane. Have you guys heard of the sashimi? Yeah, I remember. I remember whispers of the sashimi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sashimi was the first model that I ever made when I was shaping for my dad, and it was like kind of one of the first uh, step down boards. And I made it because I, like I said earlier, I'm six six, and I was a team manager at the time, and I was taking all these groms to surf contests all up and down California, and so I was surfing in them too. And I was in the men's division. I was in my like mid twenties and I was surfing against all these 18 year olds that weighed like 155 pounds at like one foot Pismo beach. And I would just get dead last every time. So I needed to create an equalizer. So I made that board, the sashimi, which was like a super flat rocker, wide in the tail, um, wing swallow thruster. And that board was insane, dude. That board like I was actually making it through heats for a while there. And then it's funny, my board had a lot of traction and that was, I don't know, that was 20, 20 plus years ago. And then Dane just asked me one for one the other day and I made him one and he sent me a clip of him just ripping on it. So that's so, pretty cool. One. So is, this, is the Sashim coming back? No, nah, man, I don't like going backwards, dude. Really? Nah. But I mean, what if you're... Can, can someone order a Sashim if you does? Can you put in a uh, custom yeah yeah order yeah? You can custom order one. Yeah, I'd be amped. To, I'd be amped to make a custom for somebody. Dane was stoked on it. He was looking good on it. A sashimi. So what? What the writing of the sashimi? And that was the first board that I ever remember during that period having its own model logo. Oh yeah. I wanted to put. I wanted to put a logo on it, and I don't remember. I'm going to sound like a douche, but I don't remember that being a normal thing in surfboards back then that they would have. Uh, that kind of a name with a model logo on it. Before, all our models at the time were like the MX, the M97, the MBB, the MBB3, you know, and there were no model logos. But then I said, and I thought, I thought fishes were lame, but this board looked a little bit fishy, so I didn't want to call it a fish. So that's why I called it a sashimi. It was a fish killer. <laughs> and uh, we drew up this little logo and it was sick. <laughs> So, so can you can you describe the one you made for uh, Dan the other day? Uh, God, that's a long pause. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, I can hear you. I don't know what the magic formula is. I thought you were having a vision then. But aren't you – I mean, isn't Dane – I'm going to break in real quick right here. Uh, Dane hitting fat middle age, still ripping. I feel if you design a board for Dane right now, it could actually be applicable. I mean, I know you are all the time, but there's something happening with Dane right now. Dane's rebirth as fat dad surfer, ripping. Yeah. Uh, I want to be a fat dad surfer, ripping. Yeah. That's everybody, right? First of all, Dane Dane is not fat. 
Um, he is. Let's be honest. He's, still, <laughs> he's, he's, he's 20 pounds above fighting weight. He's still like the most incredible surfer. Oh, yeah, we're working on new boards all the time, and we've come out with a lot of models together recently. But um, we were just in the shaping room yesterday working on a new short board together, and we've also been working on a new step down together. So we've got stuff in the pipe right now. So what, what, models, what, what models have you, have you uh, created, uh, Britt? Uh, the happy, our, our most recent high performance shortboard, the happy, uh, the black and white, the sampler, uh, the CI twin, the twin pin, uh, a bunch of them. Was it dumpster diver yours? No, no. The dumpster diver was, uh, the years that I had off. Uh, I was absent that year. Right. Okay. When, <clears throat> when you won stab in the dark. Yeah. Where does that rank on the greatest moments of your entire life? Uh, it's, it's not even on the. It's not even in the top ten. That's what I'm talking about. Stab in the dark does not matter. You <laughs> heard it. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't even register. <laughs> hey Britt. Hey Britt. Um, what uh, What does everyone mess up when they're ordering boards? What 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 mistakes do you see again and again and again when people are ordering boards? Um. You know that's weird. I, I get that question quite a bit, but I don't. I don't really. Well, I never see said it. I was original. Yeah, no, but I don't really see it happening that often. Honestly, I mean, I think there's so much good information available these days, right? Through all sorts of different surfboard outlets and websites and board reviews, and like we have like an incredible um, customer service team that like knows what they're talking about with surfboards. So I don't really see it happening that much. I, I used to say, you know, guys would sort of undergun themselves and not get enough board, but I think that's changing. I think that's changing a lot. I, I think people are, are going with more volume. So I don't really, I don't see people making that many mistakes. Do you? Uh, I, I still see people writing boards a little undercooked or yeah. maybe a little high performance than they should be writing. But I think, I think the shift to models rather than dimensions has, um, has helped everybody. Yeah, right. I got to go pick up the dog from the vet real quick. So sorry, they're closing and, and I've got to run. <laughs> Brett, <laughs> love you. Yeah, love you, man. <laughs> Good luck. What's, what's wrong with Danger? What's his name? Dynamite? No, he's gone. <laughs> Charlie, America's in a hell of a state. Are you scared? Are you, uh, are you fearing less? I'm fearing less, but I'm feeling more. <laughs> you know what you need, Chaz? You need a modular system of cameras and sensors to surround yourself with that is so simple to install. You just plug that motherfucker in and set it up, and you got and you can see if there's a if there's um, an undesirable person at the door, undesirables lurking around your house. So you can pick up that baseball bat or your AR14. Is it AR14 or AR16? I can't even remember. But did you see real quick the uh, couple that the guy who? wagged his AR I think it's 14 16 uh, sounds better though we if there yeah, if it's only if, if it's an AR 14 we should make the AR 16 <laughs> too bad uh, uh, this is a little diversion but, uh, <laughs> I, I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, was talking to a guy who won uh, uh, the Victoria Cross uh, in Australia and he was saying how how incredible it is to be in the hills of Afghanistan and there's a hundred insurgents on the next hill, 
and you can call in F-18s and drones and just blow 100, incinerate 100 people at, at your behest. Wait, you, wait just one second. Is that what Simple Safe is? Or I mean Simply Safe? That's not, that's not simply Safe is as good as calling in a drone or a, or a fleet of F-18s and just taking out the bad guys. Like I said, Jazz, it's a modular system. It's cameras, it's sensors, all sorts of shit. So you can create your paradise in Cardiff by the sea because there's a lot of lurking motherfuckers down there. There's so and many. Circle, the, the circle, so you can fear less because it is good to fear less. I mean, it's I, I need to fear less and I need to feel good. And you know who I'm scared of mostly? Uh, David Lee Scales? Sal Masekela. Oh, he's, he's, he's coming to get you. He's close. He's, he's, he's close in getting me. The other one I'm fearing is Jack English, to be honest. <laughs> Why are you scared of Jack? Oh, just the, just the DMs from Jack get me, to be honest. <laughs> the, the, the nonstop. I don't know. Any man who has that much time on their hands is one to be feared. <laughs> So, Chaz, you need a home security system that's so complicated. No, that's not that's what you don't need. You don't need a home security system that's so complicated. You need a security system. James, while protecting your whole home 24-7. Order online, open the box, place the sensors, plug in, and you're protected around the clock. Chaz, it's that simple. That's that's all I want because there's so many people coming to slap me. And or people coming to slap me that I want to beat with a baseball bat and or my AR-14. Do you want to, do you know how good it feels to fear less, Chaz? I don't know that I've ever feared less in my entire life, and I would love that feeling. So all you have to do, Chaz, is to head to simplysafe.com forward slash team. That's S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com forward slash team. Although just Google it because it's so much fucking easier. And get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com slash team. Why, Chaz? Why are you going to get simplysafe.com? Because I don't want – I will no, want... it's good. It feels good to feel less. That's why. That's exactly why. It feels so good to feel less. And you know what else feels good, Chaz? Fearing less. No, to feel less. And that's when you get the good oh. reaction. <laughs> <laughs> so fear less get simplysafe.com if you want to feel less go to any local pharmacist and get some uh, oxy how many how many uh, subscriptions is simply safe and that's simply with an I by the way because at first I thought it was simply with a Y but it's not it is S-I-M-P-L-I safe S-A-F-E happily they didn't spell it S-A-P-H-E but <laughs> how many subscriptions I, I, are you going from the SAP? I think it's the name with the Y. I would, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when we went around buying all the do- domain names um, for uh, our competitors with slight misspelling. So people would <laughs> slightly misspell it. They go, oh, Beach Grid. What's a Beach Grid? <laughs> well, Beach Grid's a place where you get, it's good to feel and to feel less. James, I think we have an ad here. Yeah, we got an ad. I think this is what Simply Safe wanted. Yeah, so so I think the um, you know the model thing has you know improved the whole process for everybody. So they're going and saying I want a five five ten by nineteen by two and a half. Yeah, and <clears throat> and so that model that model process is interesting because um, ever since Darren Hanley split from Pipe Dream to start start DHD, and then uh, Jason Stevenson split DHD to start JS, um, no one really has name shapers within there own companies anymore to um, 
you know, for fear of them building their own brand while while within someone else's. So that's correct, huh? Yeah. Convoluted question, but yeah. So what's your question there? Well, I don't know. I was just kind of riffing. I was just kind of just talking, <laughs> shit, just kind of talking shit into the air. But it's, 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 it's interesting because when we, were, when we were both kids, that you'd go to a company and all the shapers would be a name within that company. Yeah. And then after those two big splits, it stopped being, it started being moving into models and more about the brand, less about the shaper. So, so, so companies weren't grooming people basically to become their uh, competitive rivals. You think so? I mean, I think I think DH is pretty much about DH. Yeah, but he doesn't have someone um, finishing his boards, um, sort of making boards with their name on them. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. You know, so Darren yeah, yeah, yeah. used to show, so Darren used to show boards to Murray Burton a pipe dream, and and you'd walk in and go, I'll kick out one of those Darren Hanleys because he yeah, was the right. hot hot guy, and then and then JS was doing them, go, oh, Darren, can I get can I get Jason to do that? Yeah, right, right, yeah. So that was never a conscious thing at CI? <clears throat> no, it wasn't a conscious thing. I mean, um, when my when my dad was around, that wasn't really a thing. But after my dad, when my dad retired, you know, he had a great team of shapers that he had kind of developed and stuff. And so they, you know, we, we sort of adopted a real team approach there. We've got great shapers. We know that they're great shapers are great designers as well. And so we just kind of take a team approach to it and we all work together on design. We all work together on shaping. We work with different surfers. We help each other when we're stuck with surfers, there's cross pollination. So it's really cool that it's a collaborative approach. I mean, I think everybody's better as a team. Right. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So I think we've got a together thing that we're trying to work out. And I'm I'm super thankful for those guys. I wouldn't really want the whole thing to be just on me. So so what's happening with CI at the moment? Are you um what's the, is is there an end goal? Is just to keep making great boards, having a good team? Yeah, it's a lifestyle thing for us, you know. I mean, we just love surfing and we love surfboards. And so it's really just perpetuating that lifestyle. I think it's important because it, it brings people happiness. Um, and I think if everyone in the world surfed, we'd have a lot less drama. And so we're just trying to get as many people into surfing as we can and make the best board that we can. That's what's thrilling for me is making really good boards for really good surfers. That's the hardest thing to do. It's not that hard to make like cruisy boards and alternative boards, but to make a really good a uh, high performance board for a, a really good surfer is a great challenge. And I, I love doing that. And so, yeah, our goal is to perpetuate the lifestyle. I think surfing is a beautiful lifestyle and we want, we want people to enjoy that and be a part of that. But if everyone in the world surfed, it'd be apocalypse in the water. I'd still get waves. <laughs> <laughs> on, on your mid length, huh? <laughs> no way, man. I've been riding short, short boards. <laughs> do, you, do you ride the happy? What do you ride? Yeah, the happy is my shortboard, and then I ride a lot of twin fins uh, this last couple of years. You know, but ride the fish beard a lot, and then been working on this new twin fin with uh, Mikey February, the twin pin. Been working on a twin fin with Tom Curran that I've been riding a ton. So high performance shortboards would be the happy and the black and white. There's this new one that Dane and I are working on, and uh, but, but I've been just amping on twin fins. I can't get off them. When did you catch uh, twin fin fever? You know, a few years ago, Visla does this thing called the Cosmic Creek down at um, Salt Creek. And they had a shaper division where you have to shape your own board 
and then come and surf it in the contest. And uh, it had to be a twin fin or a single fin. So I shaped myself a twin fin, hadn't shaped one in a long time, shaped myself a twin fin, hand shape, you know, and went down there and surfed it in the contest. And it went so well, I was just amped. And from then on, I've been working on twin fins. That one had a little trailer, but my goal these days is to make a twin fin where when you're riding it, it never, ever enters your mind that you would want a trailer. Because I feel like that, that's kind of cheating when you have a trailer on a twin fin. So that's what I've been working on. Then I've also been working on um, how do I make boards that are really fast and have a lot of get up and go with zero concave in them. So I've been making these twin fins for Tom Curran that are, have nose to tail V, zero concave anywhere in the V, or just a flat entry with V out the back half with zero concave. So that's been like a personal challenge on the twin fin thing is how do I make a board that's faster than anything else I've ridden but doesn't have any concave and has as much hold as any thrusters I've ridden, but only has two fins. What's it like working within the, within um, Absolute Design Truths? Because um, you always have to sacrifice something for something else. Like you can't have a, um, a super drivey, super loose board. Something has to be sacrificed for the other. I mean, you can kind of mimic, you know, you know, rocker speed through, you know, concaves and whatever. But there's always sacrifices to be made, correct? Yeah, always. <clears throat> Everything in the surfboard is a trade-off, right? So... Uh, less rocker, more speed, more rocker, more turning. And the trick is finding the sweet spot between those for what you want the board to be and what the surfer wants to do. So yeah, it's always a trade-off. Even in the glassing, right? You're, you either want your board strong or you want it light. You can't necessarily have both. I think that's part of what keeps surfboards interesting and challenging is it is always a trade-off and it's a balance. And how do you find that sweet spot? And what about V? V is a long forgotten... Um component of surfboards yeah i know and you know i came up shaping in the 90s so v wasn't even like a part of my world you know what i mean everything was concave so i've been doing a lot of v's lately and quite a bit v and flat v's not spiral v's and man i'm really i you know i guess for guys like us that kind of came up in the 90s we would have thought man v's are slow and they're sticky and this and that but i've been making these twin fins lately that don't have any concave that are all V and they're working unreal. Um, just made a new one for Mikey February and he's super amped on it. So I think there's something that probably us modern guys still need to learn about Vs. Of course, it all has to do with rocker. The most important thing on a board is the rocker. And I think if you have the rocker right and you, you can incorporate Vs and have them be as fast and on top of the water as you want. Because V initially was to uh, enable a wide surfboard to go from rail to rail and I guess right. in the 90s and boards became so narrow, getting it from rail to rail wasn't that difficult. But now boards, you know, are 20, 20 inches plus wide. Yeah, that's part of it for sure. But I think that we know other ways to make boards go rail to rail now that it doesn't have to be V. I mean, you think about those boards were wide, but they had really narrow tails. They had super down rails. They had a really weird deck foil. So I think there were a lot of other things working against those boards to let them go rail to rail, especially the rail configuration and the tuck itself. So I think now we have other things in our toolbox that allow boards go rail to rail, and it doesn't only have to be V. We can start so, to use V in different ways. So a couple of the, you know, the big surfboard models of the last, I guess, year and a half have been the Rocket Wide and the, um, and the Fish Beard. <clears throat> particularly sort of end of last year, early this year was the Rocket Wide. Everyone had a Rocket Wide where I live. And now I'm just seeing everyone buying fish beards. What, 
are you doing that's um, turning people on so much, you think? Um, well, I, I mean, part, I think the thing about Rocket Wide is it's just so surfable, right? It's just so rideable. The proportions of it and the rocker of it, the proportions of it are generous, so it makes it easy to catch waves, easy to get up and going. And the rocker is just so free. It's fast, but it's free feeling. So it's a really good trade-off of those two sort of opposing design characteristics. So you just get on it and it's easy to paddle and it's easy to ride. The fish beard is like just this rad combination of flow and performance. It kind of gets like what you want to get out of a twin keel, that high line feel in that real flowy sort of fast drivey thing. But you can just immediately turn on a dime, put it on rail, and go straight up with it or push it super hard in the pocket. So I think that's the fascination with that board is, again, it's like capturing this really magical sweet spot between two opposing ideals, which is high performance and sort of high line flow. So what are the elements of the fish beer that make it perform so Well, the rocker, first of all, it's got the neckbeard 2 rocker, uh, which is a really low rocker, but has a really good break in the back half. Neckbeard 2 has been Dane's go-to board the last couple of years for small waves. Um, So it's really high performance, but it's got tons of get up and go for small waves. So we just kind of changed, sort of elongated the curve of the rocker in the back half. But then the magic is really putting those twin keels together with that rocker. And that was kind of from Parker Coffin's imagination. He was riding the neckbeard and the CI Fish, and he's like, man, the neckbeard rocker is so insane. He's riding it at uh, BSR and doing airs and stuff, but really liking that flowy twin fin thing. So his idea was like, what if we put these things together? And normally that doesn't work, but with that combination it worked. So with the the neckbeard 2 rocker, is that pretty straight through the first two-thirds and then a fair bit of kick in the tail? Yeah, exactly. But not just kicking the tail. It really has quite a big break, like 15 inches up or so. Where the hip in the board is, it breaks quite a bit there. So it's more than just tail flip. It's really, it kind of reminds me of like the stage rockers that my dad was doing like on the flyer back in the day. It's got an entry rocker and then a really flat engine and then a lot of curve out of the back. Right. And and the um, and the three-stage rockers are always a little bit easier to ride for the average yeah. Man and woman on the street, huh? Yeah, they're less demanding. You know, you can kind of just get on one part or the other and they, they don't um, demand like continuous drive to keep them going or continuous rail to rail or being able to hold your speed. Yeah, it seems like the best uh, or the most successful surfboard companies are the ones that can create boards that are, that are stable and a person can kind of fuck up where they stand and they can still keep going, huh? Yeah, right. Yeah. That's what most of us do most of the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, did you ever find the bastards who busted into uh, CI in Santa Monica? Did I what? I'm sorry. Did you guys ever find the bastards who busted into uh, CI in Santa Monica and stole all your mid legs? No, we didn't get busted into. Didn't you turn the rights? No, no, they attempted to bust in, but our employees were there. And so they got Patagonia just around the corner. We're right next to Patagonia down there. And I think they broke one of our windows, but the employees were there, so we never lost anything. Oh, that's, that's a wonderful outcome. I know. We're, the, the boys and girls down there were crushing it. <laughs> hey, are you a gunman? Like Chaz and his wife who are um, liberals. They've been talking about getting a gun to protect themselves. Do you guys um, do you have a fleet of guns in your house? Well, I'm a hunter. 
So um, I don't buy any meat. I hunt all my own meat. I feed my family uh, all through the year with meat that I hunt. And I, I often use a bow for that, bow hunting, but I use guns as well. So I, had, I have guns for that, for hunting. And I spend a lot of time hunting. I actually think that's one of the most noble things um, a human being can do that, that kills his own food rather than being so removed from the process of um, the death of an animal and, and the process of um, you know preparing that animal to eat. Yeah, you know, I think it's a very serious thing. Eating is, you know, anytime that we eat, something has to die, even if it's vegetables. For us to live, other things have to die. And life is precious. So I think it's um, it's it's a bummer to be super removed from that and just know that all these things are dying all the time to feed you and to not be involved in that process because life is precious. So it really adds like value to it. When you take the animal's life at your own hands, you understand how heavy that is, but then you understand how um, sort of rewarding it is when it feeds your family for an entire year and all your friends. So yeah, I think it's a really cool thing. Um, and you know, I think that factory farming is kind of lame and kind of a bummer and, uh, the animals get really mistreated there. And when you're hunting something, they've lived a really good life. They've eaten as clean as possible. They die quickly and there's no waste, man. Like I said, we'll feed our whole family and all our friends for a long time. So yeah, I think it's a cool thing. Is it, is it quite a spiritual pursuit? Because most people just get their, uh, their meat from, um, and in our burger or the uh, or the supermarket, and we'll and we'll quite flippantly you know, have a pig for breakfast, have a lamb for lunch, and have a cow for dinner. Right. Whereas whereas you, it would be quite an important and a somewhat spiritual deal, I'd imagine. Yeah, it really is. <clears throat> and even just like, I think the spiritual part of it starts with a connection with the outdoors. You know, if you're going to go into an animal's environment and uh, be able to um, pursue it and get it, you've really put a lot into that and you've really immersed yourself in the outdoors and in the outdoor experience. And there's something just incredible about that, being in the outdoors in that way. And hunting is, at least the way that I hunt, it's hard. It's really hard. So I spend a lot of time in the mountains and you learn so much more than just how to get your meat when you're out there. And then, yeah, I think there is a spiritual connection. I mean, when I'm, when I'm, you know, preparing, cooking, barbecuing some meat that I put so much time and effort into. And I held the animal in my hands. I cut the meat out myself. I put it in my backpack. I carried it down the mountain. When you've done all that stuff, it does feel like there's some spiritual connection to what you're eating. And I think that's important because um, we're whole beings, you know what I mean? We're mind, body, and soul. And I think it all is interconnected. So when we eat in that way, I think it adds to our wholeness. What sort of animals do you hunt? I hunt primarily elk and deer. Um, some, you know, bird stuff too. Um, turkeys and chuckers and quail and uh, pig as well. Only stuff that I eat. Yeah. And what, what is it like when you've, because um, I, I live in Bondi, so I don't do a lot of hunting <laughs> and uh, just hunting pussy. But um, um, so, you, so you've, you've, uh, you've got an animal, you hit him with an arrow and um, and you're sort of cradling the animal and he's dying. And you, I actually spoke to Shane Dorian about it. And that moment when you've got this animal kind of, you know, in your arms and you see his life force sort of just drifting away. Can you describe that moment? Or are you just straight in? Or do you, just, you just kill him first, first go? 
No, um, they always die bef- before you get there. You can't come up on an animal that's that's like in the throes of death and think you're going to hold it in your arms. These are wild animals. It's not like your dog that you're taking to the vet, <laughs> like Chaz's dog right now. <laughs> <that you're laughs> they're, they're not, not, they're not, they're not looking you in the eyes and going, they're not looking you in the eyes. And I, I don't think there's any hunter in the world that goes up to an animal when it's still dying. You make sure that it's dead first or wild animals that could be dangerous. And an elk can weigh a thousand pounds. So, and have huge, you know, antlers. So you're not going to go up to that thing until you're sure that it's dead. But when I go up to an animal that's died, it's always a weird sort of juxtaposition of accomplishment um, and joy because you've accomplished something very difficult and put a lot of work and time and effort into it. And also a sense of like um, humble gratitude that the animal, you know, you took its life to serve and to feed your life I always say a prayer. I, I thank God that we have that resource and that we could do that. And then as weird as it sounds, I, I like to put my hands on the animal in sort of an affectionate way that expresses gratitude. And I'll just pet it and kind of pat it on the neck and say, thanks, buddy. And um, then you got to cut it up and put it in the backpack. So you, so you've, how do you kill a thousand pound elk with an with a arrow or with a bullet? Uh, either way, you know, um, and next month, about a month from now, elk season will open up. I got a little cabin up in Montana and we'll head up there and, uh, I'll be hunting with my bow and yeah, it's, it's difficult. You got to get close. You got to make a perfect shot and get it through the lungs and the heart. And then it'll die very, very quickly. And, uh, it's on. And then what happens next? So how do you get a, a one ton animal down the mountain? so much work dude so then you got to start butchering it you know you skin it and then you start cutting out the different parts of meat and then you put them in uh, little bags that you could carry on your back and you know usually there's two of us together and we'll carry out 150 pounds or so at a time and have to do multiple trips and we're usually several miles back so it's it's pretty big effort to carry all the meat out wow do you keep the antlers yeah yeah we do we do yeah, I, I, I wouldn't want to just leave them there. I mean, they're pretty beautiful. I'm not hunting for antlers. Antlers, I'm hunting to feed my family. Um, but it would be weird to just leave them there. We do keep them. And how do you prepare the, uh, the elk meat? Do you have it as burgers or do you have it as big steaks? And- uh, both. Some of it becomes burger because some of the meat is fairly tough, so it lends itself best to a burger or sausage platform. But I'm really into the steaks, so a lot of the animal can be made into steaks and roasts. And you just kind of educate yourself on which part is which, and you, you cut it that way, and then we put it in the freezer. And uh, 99% of the time, I've, I've got it on the Traeger on the barbecue. And, then, and, a, um, and one big elk will feed your uh, family for a year? Yep. That's extraordinary. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's cool. And, man, it's the best meat you've ever had. It's the best meat you've ever had. It's so good. It's so cool. Can you describe how succulent it is? Well, I don't know, like, it's so, uh, cows have like 16 times the fat content that elk or deer do. So it's a very lean meat, which changes everything. Cause I think part of what we all like about cows is that, that fat thing, that fat content gives the cows a certain flavor and a certain, um, sort of succulent quality, but elk and deer are different. It's a very lean meat. So therefore, You have to be a little more careful how you cook it. You cook it on lower temperatures. You don't cook it as much. You know, everything is like medium rare. You would never do more than that. Um, 
So it's got like a more distinct flavor, uh, but really, really lean. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, it's good, man. Next time you're in California, we'll, we'll get you some. <laughs> yeah, the swing and blow. I'm going to swing by for a fish beard and a sashimi and a elk burger. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Britt, uh, just, just finally, uh, what's heaven on earth for you? Uh, I think heaven on earth for me is um, having all of my relationships sort of peaceful and intact and um, I think being in a sort of peaceful state with my family and surfing good waves. And making surfboards. Yeah, I'm making surfboards. All right. Thanks so much, Brie. You've been amazing. Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate it. It was good, good to chat with you, brother. Good Hopefully I'll uh, meet you in person soon. Yep, I'm sure we will. All right. Thanks, hey, Brett. Cheers. For listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube. You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.